Amen. Good morning and happy almost New Year, Harvest. Uh, If you're visiting with us uh, this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest as an associate pastor. And whether you're joining us in person this morning, you're tuning in online, uh, we're just so thankful that you're choosing to spend part of your New Year's Eve with us. And uh, like Pastor Dan said earlier, uh, if you are visiting, we've got a Connect card. We'd love to connect with you afterwards and just get to know you a little bit. Uh, But I'm excited to get into God's Word together this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, your phones, or whatever it is that you typically use to get your eyes on God's word. And would you meet me uh, this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3? We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 this morning as we uh, finish up the year and we transition from our Christmas series that we've just gone through. And in a couple weeks, we'll get back into the gospel of John in our, in our series there. And so even if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, as we talk about God's word from God's word, I would really encourage you to uh, get your eyes on God's word. And so there's a couple ways you could do that. If you don't have a Bible, you could uh, just pull out a phone and Google second Timothy chapter three, and it'll pop up for you. Or we've got some Bibles uh, somewhere in the back, back there that you could uh, make use of. And if you don't have one uh, at all, we would love for you to just take that and keep it uh, as our gift to you. Uh, but Second Timothy chapter 3 uh, this morning, and if you're still turning here there, that's okay. But we're going to stop and we're going to pray for our time together in God's word uh, this morning. Um, Father, um, you are worthy of it all. And uh, you're worthy of so much more than we could ever give. And so as we come to your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would be present and active and moving among us um, even as this passage that we'll look at says uh, to, uh, to equip us, to make us complete for every good work, that you would work in us. We believe that every word of Scripture is inerrant and inspired by your Spirit. And so we ask that you would work um, in and through us by your, your word, through your Spirit this morning. Would you uh, help us, guard us from distractions, uh, strengthen my voice even this morning as I preach. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So according to the most recent State of Theology in America research report from LifeWay Research that comes out about every two years or so, uh, 53% of Americans would say that the Bible, like all sacred writings, quote-unquote, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 48% would agree with this statement that the Bible has no authority to tell me what to do. 60% of Americans would say that Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not objective truth. As heartbreaking as those statistics are, it's it's not hard to imagine. It's easy for us to look around at our culture and and, and see why those statistics would uh, would be accurate given what we know about our culture around us and how it views God's word. So then what is, the, what is it about church-going people? Like we could maybe say, well, that's, that's out there. What about in here? Well, that same survey, among Americans who, uh, by the research criteria, attend church at least once or twice a month, about a third of those people would say that the Bible is helpful, but not literally true. About a third of them would say that the Bible is not 100% accurate. And about a third would say that the Bible has no authority whatsoever to tell them what to do. Again, let's zoom in a little even closer because, of course, we know that there's some people that go to church, and, but maybe they're, they're not uh, truly Christians. They've never truly turned from their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so so what, about, what about those people who at least really do claim to be genuine followers of Jesus? What about them? Well, again, of course, surveys aren't fully accurate, and of course, they can't see into people's hearts, but by the research criteria, the people that at least seem to be genuine followers of Jesus based on that research... Among those people, 29% would say that the Bible is helpful, but not literally true. 
About 20% of them, these are at least appear to be genuine followers of Jesus, and about 20% believe that the Holy Spirit can tell them to do something that has expressly been forbidden in the Bible. These statistics, while modern, are not a new thing. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, Paul said that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We see that in play in those stats I just read. And, and, and apparently by the time uh, Paul had written that, that, that had already become a reality in his day. Because right before our passage for this morning, he says people were already deceiving and being deceived. They departed from the truth of God's word. They, they drifted from the Bible says to, you know what, I, I feel like. And so if that's where our culture is, and if those stats are any indication of what the average American and churchgoer, and maybe even some professing Christians think about the Bible... We've got some questions to wrestle with. Like why in the world then would one of our four pillars as a church be the unapologetic preaching of God's word? Why would we spend 45 minutes to an hour every Sunday morning with somebody standing here behind this pulpit with God's word open and and saying what God's word says? Why would we do that? Why would we then in small groups a few days later go back to that same passage and, and revisit it and study it again and seek to apply it to our lives right then and there? Why would we as pastors and elders, as small group leaders, routinely encourage you to to be in God's word regularly, even even daily, especially as we start a new year? And you know what, really while we're at it, why why on earth would the very name of our church be Harvest Bible Chapel? Maybe you've wrestled with some of those questions yourself. Maybe as I I read those statistics, maybe, maybe you found yourself in some of those statistics and you're questioning some of those things. Maybe you've thought, well, I'll go to church, I'll, I'll hang around, I'll go to small group, I'll make some friends, but, but does that, re- that old book really have anything for me? Or are we just taking it way too seriously? That's why a commitment to God's word is, is, is imperative, it's vital for us as followers of Jesus. And so if you're, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, here's our big idea, our one sentence overarching theme of the passage that'll, that'll put it all together for us. Our big idea this morning is this, the Bible is God's word so we must continue in it throughout the Christian life. Again, the Bible is God's word, so we must continue in it throughout the Christian life. As we get into this passage, I want us to to feel the full weight of what's going on in this important passage. So before we go any further, instead of just reading this passage, I actually want us this morning to read all of 2 Timothy chapter 3 together. And so if you'll follow along with me in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, Paul's writing to (coughs) Timothy his young pastoral protege, and here's what he says. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, 
have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now here's our passage for this morning. But as for you, but as for you, Timothy, but as for you, Harvest, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so as we look at these, these last few verses there in, in 2 Timothy 3, right from the text itself this morning, I want us to see three reasons for us to continue in God's word. And so if you're ready, let's go ahead and jump in. We must continue in God's word first because it points us to Jesus. And we must continue in God's word because it points us to Jesus. Look back really quickly right with me at, at verses 14 and 15 there again. He, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you a question. What do you think the Bible's about? That question sounds really simple and straightforward, but, but if we were to take a poll this morning in a room this size, we'd probably come up with all kinds of different answers. So maybe you'd say that the Bible is... It's just a book about God. It's like a history book that tells us what he's done and what he's like and, and how he's involved himself in humanity. And that's, that's certainly true. That's part of it. But that's not the main point of the Bible. Maybe you'd say it's, it's like a practical guide for life. It's a how-to book for how to be a better person or a more loving spouse or a more effective parent. And, and that's, that's partially true as well. The Bible has lots to say with some helpful things about how to navigate relationships with wisdom. But again, that's not primarily what the Bible's about. And so the, the problem then is that too many of us flip up, open our Bibles because we, we know it's probably a good idea, we, we probably should, and, and we want to learn some things about God or be a better parent, but we don't know what, what the Bible's about. And then we land somewhere in Leviticus reading a bunch of dietary laws, or we land in Judges reading about Jael hammering a tent peg through somebody's skull, and we're like, well, this isn't helpful for marriage at all. And like, like A, glad you realized that. Like, please don't do that. Don't apply that to your marriage. But again, B, the question remains, what's the Bible actually about? Because without the answer to that question, you're setting yourself up for a lot of frustration and a lot of disappointment when you, when you approach God's word. So what does Jesus say that God's word's about? Like, he seems like a pretty good person to ask. Well, like Luke 24 says that on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, uh, two men were walking on the road to Emmaus and to pass the time they were talking about everything that had been going on and that there had been a lot happening. And, and it says that while they were walking, Jesus showed up and he starts talking to them, but they didn't recognize him. In their, and, 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 and Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? I'm like, what are you, have you been hiding under a rock? Like, have you not heard what's been going on? Like, we're talking about Jesus. Like he was this awesome teacher and we thought maybe he was in the Messiah, but then he, he, they crucified him and they buried him and, and now somebody's stolen his body and you know, it was fun while it lasted, but, but I think at this point it's all over. And Jesus looked at them in Luke 24 and said, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, on their seven mile walk together, 
Jesus showed them from scripture, that scripture is all about him. That's all pointing to Jesus. Obviously they didn't have full Bibles like we have today. They just would have had what we call the old Testament. But even today, all of our Bibles still point to Jesus. Alistair Begg puts it this way. He says, we find Christ in all the scriptures in the old Testament. He's predicted in the gospels. He's revealed in acts. He's preached in the epistles. He's explained. And in revelation, he's expected because all of scripture points to Jesus but it's not just about him in some informational way that teaches you some interesting facts about Jesus. Back in second Timothy, Paul says again, that those sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's be really clear here though. Reading your Bibles and even believing your Bibles, just, uh, just, just at face value cannot save you. Just so you think I'm saying something a little crazy, maybe off there. Uh, Jesus said that himself in John chapter five, verses 39 and 40. He's talking to some of the most devout Jewish religious leaders. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So no, the Bible can't save you, but it will point you to the one who can. Because as Paul says back in here in 2 Timothy 3, salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus. So what's the Bible about? The Bible is a story of salvation through faith in Jesus. And we we see that when we look at the Bible in four movements. Movement one, creation. Genesis 1.1, you know know the verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke the worlds into existence. He created everything and it was good. Adam and Eve lived in perfect relationship with him, but that did not last long because then movement number two was the fall. Genesis three, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and plunged the entire world into sin. Now, everyone who's ever lived, you, me, everyone is a sinner who has broken God's law. The just penalty for that sin is eternal punishment in a literal physical place called hell. And then most of the Old Testament, most of the rest of it is, is full of sin and wickedness and darkness and longing for a savior and the substitute It's full of of that. It's full of people longing for a savior because the prophets and the judges and the kings, they they couldn't save, they couldn't couldn't help, they couldn't give hope. But there's good news because as as we move into the New Testament movement, number three, there's redemption. John one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the good news of the gospel. The Old Testament made it clear that we can't save ourselves. So Jesus came to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and then die the death that we deserved so that when we would repent of our sins and place our faith in him, he would would save us and redeem us and and restore our relationship with God. And if you've never done that this morning, if you're here and and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I would would plead with you to, to run to him this morning and be saved. And as good news as that is, it gets even better for those who are in Christ because movement number four is restoration. The end of the story is that Jesus will eventually return to rule and reign and restore everything to perfection. No more pain, no more tears, heaven on earth. Literally, that's what this is all pointing to. And boy, do we look forward to that day as we follow him in obedience until that day. But again, all of scripture points to Jesus. And because of that, Paul tells Timothy that yes, there's, There's people out there who are deceiving and being deceived. But then he says, but as for you, Timothy, but as for you, harvest, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. In other words, Paul says, stand firm on God's word. 
Never waver. Don't ever move past the gospel. Never move past God's word like you stop taking piano lessons or you quit playing Little League because it is Jesus who will save you and it is Jesus who will sustain you in life. He says, don't ever get over Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. Paul says, Timothy, you know this message is true. You've seen it in my life as I've mentored you. You've seen it in your mother and your grandmother's lives as as they've raised you and you've studied the scriptures for yourself from the time that you were a child and you know that they hold up. So, So continue in them because they point you to Jesus, your savior, the one who died for you. So Harvest, question for you, will will you continue in God's word because it points you to Jesus? Will you continue in God's word because it points you to your savior, the one who died for you, the lover of your soul? That's not the only reason Paul gives us to continue in God's word here. He goes on to say that we must continue in God's word second because God wrote it. Because God wrote it. Just look with me at the first phrase of verse 16. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God. What in the world does that mean? That's kind of a weird phrase. What does it mean when it says that scripture is breathed out by God? Like how does that happen and what does that mean for us and how we approach scripture? In Greek, when it says that scripture is breathed out by God, the word is theonoustos. It's one word and it's an incredibly important word. It's actually the only time in scripture where that word appears because Paul was constantly making up these compound words to create pictures that would explain really complex things in simple terms. And this is one of those times. See, theo means God, like theology, the, the study of God. Pneuma means breath or breathe like pneumonia, which is in the lungs, which I do not have, I promise right now as I've been coughing. So theonoustos literally means God breathed. Think of it this way. Your, your thoughts originate in your head and move to your lips where they are then breathed out by your lungs. Your words are you breathed. God's words are God breathed by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Peter explains that a little more in 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What that means is that we believe what theologians call verbal plenary inspiration. Big words, simple meaning, I promise. Just means that God inspired the text of scripture word by word by word by word. In other words, what what didn't happen was God didn't just tell Paul, hey, Paul, uh, go write down some stuff about what you think the Christian life should be like, and then uh, come back to me, show you what you got, and and I'll I'll probably sign off on it, maybe make a couple corrections. That's that's not what happened. God didn't say, hey, Luke, write down some of your memories from what it was like traveling with Paul, what the early church was like, and and we'll call that Acts. That didn't happen. He didn't say, David, I've been reading some of the stuff in your diary. You got some really good stuff in there. So we're going to make that public now and we're going to call it Psalms. That's, that's not what happened. Every single word of it was inspired by the Holy Spirit as the human authors wrote down in their own voices and personalities exactly what God wanted them to write, word by word by word. Because God wrote a book. Because God wrote a book, we must elevate that book above every other book because it's the only book that's inspired by God. That's what separates it from every other book. Like you all know, uh, I love books. Uh, we'll, we'll see what the count is by midnight tonight, but right now I'm at 47 books for this year, hoping to finish another one this afternoon. Uh, and, and, and there are plenty of books on my shelves that are inspiring. I could point you towards books about soldiers and athletes and missionaries who have done incredible things. And you could read those books and, and be motivated to do great things as well because they're inspiring books 
but none of those books are inspired. God did not breathe out those books. Also on my shelves, you'll find all kinds of books that are full of biblical truth, theology textbooks, commentaries, Christian classics, and you can read them and grow in your love for God and your knowledge of God. And I'm thankful for those resources, but they're not inspired. God did not breathe on the pens of A.W. Tozer or C.S. Lewis or J.I. Packer. Only scripture is the inspired word of God. And that's why Charles Spurgeon once said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. But there's another interesting word here in this phrase that we haven't looked at. It's the word all. It says all scripture is breathed out by God. And the, the specific Greek word that's translated there as all is the word pasa. The, the, the phrase is pasa graphe theonoustos. I did some pretty extensive research on this word and I want to share with you what I found about this word. Um, it, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty important. So don't miss this, but here's a literal definition of the Greek word pasa that's translated as all. It's fascinating. You ready for it? It means all. It just means all. All means all. All scripture is breathed out by God. Every word of it. And because the author is God, not only is it inspired, but it's also inerrant. There is no error. And what that means for us is that you can trust that it's true and that it's good and that it's right. All of it, every last word. But listen, there will always be parts of scripture that are difficult to wrestle with, that are hard to submit to, and that our culture will say are old fashioned or controversial. But all means all. And when you start picking and choosing the parts that you want to believe and then taking out the parts you don't like, then eventually the whole thing will come crashing down. And so if we were to come over here this morning and, and play some Bible Jenga, I'm sure you were wondering why that was here. If we were to come over here and play some Bible Jenga this morning, you know, we could, we could approach this and as we're thinking about God's word, we could say, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with the fact that the Bible talks about a place called hell and that, that if, you, uh, if you don't turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ, then, then that's, that's what eternity is for you. I'm not comfortable with that. So, you know, we're just going we're gonna, to we're gonna take this out right here and we're going to get rid of that because we, we don't need that anymore. You know what? I'm not comfortable that, that, that our, our culture says that homosexuality is not a sin. And so, you know, we're, we're just not going to hold to a biblical sexual ethic anymore. We're going we're gonna to get rid of something else. We can, we can pull this out and, and get rid of that. We're not going to need that anymore either. You know what, as I was reading my Bible this morning, it, it, it showed me this, this thing, and it's calling it sin, and it's in my life, but I like it, and I'm not, I'm not willing to get rid of it, so you know, we'll, we'll take this one out too, and we're just not going to deal with that part of Scripture. And while we're at it, you know, um, miracles don't really happen, right? Miracles can't, that's, that's not a real thing, so, so we can take that out. And before you know it, the whole thing comes crashing down and you have nothing left. Not even the Jesus that all of scripture points to. It's either all of scripture is God breathed or it's not. Either all of scripture is inspired or it's not. Either all of scripture is inerrant or it's not. And the problem is that, that Satan is always determined to get people to lean towards the it's not side of that statement. That's his question to Eve all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3.1. He, he says, did God really say that? Is that really what, what you think God, how, how God wants you to live? Is that, really, is that really accurate? That's what he wants you to wrestle with this morning in every area of your life. So friends, we must continue in God's word because God wrote it, all of it. And friends, you may never stand behind a, a pulpit and preach a sermon, but if you were a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you're called to stand on the truth of God's word in every area of your life. 
So harvest, will you do that? Will you, will you, you stand on the truth of God's word in the privacy of your home, in, in, the, in the depths of your soul when, when you're reading it and it, it goes against what you think and what you like? Will you stand on the truth of God's word at work when, 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 when you're tempted to go along with the flow, but you know what God's word says? Will you stand on the truth of God's word? Paul says we must continue in God's word first because it points us to Jesus, and second, because God wrote it. And third and finally this morning, we must continue in God's word because it's the foundation for our discipleship. Because it's the foundation for our discipleship. If you would look back with me one last time at the rest of verses 16 and 17, Paul says this. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God <coughs> and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, the Bible isn't just about what points us to Jesus at the beginning of the Christian life so we can be saved and that's it. It's, it's not like we can just use God's word to get an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and, and get saved and then toss our Bibles aside and do whatever we want. That's, that's not the case. Paul makes it clear that God's word is the primary tool that the Holy Spirit uses to, to sanctify us throughout the Christian life. Or I love the way H.B. Charles puts it. He says that it is the will of God for the spirit of God to use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. In other words, God's word is the foundation for our discipleship. And discipleship's one of those church words that we throw around a lot and we're all familiar with it, but, but sometimes we aren't really clear about what we mean by discipleship. And so here's all discipleship is. Here's, here's what it really means. Discipleship is the process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. It's being continually conformed to the image of Jesus. It's, it's how followers of Jesus grow to be more like their savior as they walk through the Christian life. Because see, God's word doesn't just point us to Jesus so we can be saved. It, it points us to Jesus so we can follow him and be like him. So our lives can be transformed by his grace for the glory of God. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for believers. And in verse 17, he prays this for you. Like Jesus is praying for you. And he prays this. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word, that scripture, is truth. That's what Jesus is praying for you. And Paul agrees here in 2 Timothy 7, 3 verse 17. He says that the goal is for the man or, or woman or person of God to be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the goal of God's word is to make us ready and equipped to live as followers of Jesus in this world. Earlier I said we can't approach God's word like it's a self-help book to to, to find some tips on how to be a better person and expect our lives to just instantly improve when we do everything the right way. It doesn't work like that. But here's the thing. The longer you walk with Jesus, and the more you grow in your sanctification, the more you submit to God's word, the more you'll end up being a better husband and a better father and a better wife and a better mom and a better, by his grace and the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God's word equips you to live like Jesus. That's the goal. Again, it is the will of God for the spirit of God to use the word of God to make the children of God, that's us, look like the son of God, that's Jesus. So how does that work then? Well, Paul says that scripture is profitable or it's useful. It's effective for four things in the Christian life here in verse 16. He says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Those are the 
the, the building blocks for, for discipleship. And to quote one of my heroes, Dr. Danny Aiken, those four things teach us what's right, what isn't right, how to get right, and how to stay right. So let me, let me explain here. First, it says God's word is profitable for teaching. That's doctrine. That's learning what's right. It's, it's what's true. It's why what we believe has to match up with God's, what God's word says and why our, our statement of faith as a church isn't just what we thought would look good on paper. It's what God's word says. It's what God's word says because God's word teaches us what's right. And so, so Harvest, question for you. How will you know? How will you know what's right if you're not regularly being in God's word? If you're not getting into God's word and studying God's word for yourself and, and devoting yourself on a regular basis to, I want to I wanna know what's right. I want to I learn from God's word. How, how are you going to do that if you're not in God's word? Second, it says that God's word is profitable for, profitable for reproof. That's what's lear, it's learning what isn't right. As James 1.23 says, we can look into God's word like it's a mirror to have your sins and your errors exposed. See, the Bible is the one book where you don't just read it, it reads you. God's word teaches you what isn't right. So harvest, question, how will you know when you've gone off course and fallen into sin if you won't commit yourself to God's word? How are you going to know when you're wrong? Are you going to go with the the plan of the world? I'm going to follow my heart? Because the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Like, don't follow your heart. Follow God's word. Third, it says that God's word is profitable for correction. That's fixing what's wrong. It's like looking at a metal rod and seeing that it's crooked and then going through the process of bending that metal rod back into being perfectly straight so that when you lay it on the ground, it it lays flat. Because God's word teaches you how to get right. So harvest, question, how will you find the way back if you won't submit yourself to God's word? How will you find your way back if you won't allow God's word to correct you and point you in the right direction to conform you to the image of Christ? And finally, it says that God's word is profitable for training in righteousness. That's how to stay right. Professional athletes who are in peak physical condition can't just take months off from working out during the off season. They've got to do their part to keep training, to stay in shape and be ready to compete at a moment's notice. God's word is how we train for righteousness. It's what keeps us in shape to be ready to serve our king at a moment's notice. So let me ask you, have you been working out? Or has, has it been a while since you've been in the gym of God's word? Because spiritual health, like physical health, does not happen automatically. So harvest question for you. How will you grow into a wise, mature follower of Jesus Christ if you won't devote yourself to God's word. Don't be content to be spoon fed. Don't be content to just go along with the flow. Devote yourself to God's word so that you can grow into a wise, mature follower of Jesus Christ. Because again, it is the will of God for the spirit of God to use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. All that to say, we must continue in God's word because it's the foundation for our discipleship. It teaches us what's right, what isn't right, how to get right and how to stay right as followers of Jesus Christ. But in order for that to work, in order for God's word to be effective as the foundation for our discipleship, we've got to properly position ourselves in relation to it. Because see, there's really only three ways that we can position ourselves in relation to God's word. First, you can place yourself over God's word. Like you can just throw it down here and kind of 
kind of just kick it around and say, I don't need this. I don't want it. I, don't, I know better than it. I'm wiser, smarter, better than God. So, so I can just toss this aside and do whatever. I need this to say that is not how we should position ourselves in relation to God's word. Second option, you could place yourself even with God's word. Kind of, kind of put it right in here. This is the person who puts it in front of them. They study it. They respect it. Or at least they say they do. They know a lot about it. They've been studying it, but they aren't really becoming fully formed followers of Christ. They're just big theological brains with unchanged lives. And like Jesus said, these are the people who search the scriptures because they think that it'll get them somewhere, but, but they don't get the fact that scripture is what points them to Jesus and that Jesus is the one who will save them and sanctify them and sustain them. These people that hold themselves even with God's word are Pharisees. They, and that might sound like it's a better place to be than the first option, but it's still not the right place. The right place will be to place yourself under the authority of God's word. This person says, you know, I believe that this book is the very word of God and I'm, I'm going to study it. I'm going to submit myself to it and believe it and obey it no matter what. I might not always like it. It might put me in some awkward positions. It might make me uncomfortable. It might uh, cost me some friendships. It might cost me some, some things that I like to do. And I, I might not even always understand why it says some of those things. But when I find myself in disagreement with God's word, you know what? I'm going to assume that I'm wrong because God can't be wrong. And he wrote this. And so I'm going to submit myself to him and his word. That's the right place to be in relation to God's word. Is that you this morning? Where do you stand in relation to God's word? Will you dig in and submit to it as the foundation for your discipleship? Or will you simply use it as a prop on Sunday mornings? Or on whatever night your small group meets? To, to, to bring it along, you know, I brought my Bible, whatever, but the rest of the time it's, it's a dust collector. Charles Spurgeon once said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Because it's the foundation of our discipleship. And so we must continue in God's word. The 18th century French philosopher Voltaire was outspoken uh, in his opposition to Christianity. And at one point he said that the Bible is that which fools have written, what imbeciles command, what rogues teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. Needless to say, he, he did not believe the teachings of the Bible. He said to invent all those things in the Bible is the last degree of rascality, to believe them the extreme of brutal stupidity. And there are a lot more quotes I could share about what Voltaire thought about God's word in Christianity, but in 1776, uh, he made a rather bold prediction. He stood up in front of a crowd of people. He told them that a hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except that which is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. In other words, in a hundred years, the Bible's gonna be a museum piece. Nobody's gonna care, nobody's gonna read it, nobody, nobody's gonna think about what it says. Well, 58 years after Voltaire's death, a man named Colonel Henry Tronchin was living in Voltaire's house in Geneva, Switzerland. In an ironic turn of God's providence, Colonel Tronchin was just so happened to be the founder of the Evangelical Society of Geneva and used some of the extra rooms in Voltaire's house to store Bibles. If that's not enough, in Fern, France, where Voltaire spent the last 18 years of his life, the very Printing presses that had been used to print Voltaire's work were used to print Bibles with the exact same special expensive paper that Voltaire had purchased to print his books. So Voltaire was wrong. The Bible is no ordinary book. 
It will never grow irrelevant or lose its power. Atheists may burn it. Dictators may ban it from their empires. False teachers may twist it. Scholars may try to discredit it, but as Isaiah 40 verse eight says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of God will continue on forever. The question harvest is, will you continue with it? Will you stand on it as the final authority for every area of your life? Will you trust that what it says is good and right, regardless of what our culture thinks about it, regardless of how you feel when it steps on your toes, regardless of anything, will you continue in God's word? In Nehemiah 8, the people of Israel gathered together and looked at Ezra, the scribe, and told him to bring out the book of the law of Moses, the Lord commanded Israel. In other words, they looked at Ezra and said, bring out the book, teach us the scriptures, preach to us. And so Ezra brought out the book and says they read from the book, the law of God clearly and gave the sense of it so that the people understood the reading. And then they rejoiced because they'd heard from God through his word. We have a God who speaks. Harvest, I pray that in the year 2024, we would increasingly become a bring out the book kind of people. A people who continue in God's word because they love God's word and desire God's word and devour God's word. Not just at church in public, not just at small group in public, but but at home in private. And not just in a way that studies it and learns it in some, some, some academic way, but in a way that submits to it and believes it and trusts it and lives it because it points us to Jesus and because God wrote it because it's the foundation for our discipleship. So let's continue in God's word together. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes? Father, thank you for your word. The gift of God's word that you've given us, that you are a God who speaks and has revealed yourself to us uh, through your word. We, we thank you for that. We praise you that it, it points us to Jesus, our savior. We thank you that, uh, that again, that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that, that you've given us this as, as the foundation for our discipleship to, uh, to, to show us the way of how to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And, and so I pray right now as we end the year 2023 and, and head into 2024 in, uh, in just a few hours, God, would you use this moment to convict us and draw us ultimately to yourself, but through your word, Burden us to study and know and love and live your word. Give us the humility and the conviction to submit ourselves to it in every area of our lives, in every, every way possible, God. Would you, would you do that work in our hearts? Because we can't do it ourselves. We can't, through our own resolve, become a people of the book. But you can do that work. And so we ask that you would. Would you be glorified in this worship that we give? In Jesus' name, amen.